0: Attitudes are beginning to change the stigma surrounding dyslexia.
1: Muddled messages were received by the brains. dyslexia. 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 Dyslexia.
2: Hello, I'm Elizabeth. I'm Charlotte. And you're listening to Move Beyond
0: Words. In this podcast, we are exploring dyslexia in all its surprising, creative, and often misunderstood forms. Each week, we invite
2: different guests to talk, listen, and share. Expect authentic, off-the-cuff stories to connect with and learn from, and celebrate the ways in which we can all move beyond words. On this week's episode, we got the opportunity to sit down with Head of Press at the Royal Ballet, Ashley Woodfield. Before Ashley began his work promoting dance across all platforms from print to digital, connecting the world of ballet to the worldwide fashion houses and publications across the globe. But his journey has been a roller coaster. From his school days where support
0: was not found in the classroom, to getting a master's degree in a field that he felt would be a sensible choice. But Ashley never went with the easy route and continued to chase his dreams of working within the arts we got the chance to learn more about Ashley's life with his dyslexia, discovering moments that have laid dormant for some time, but clearly showcasing how Ashley's dyslexia has contributed to the wonderful work he's doing today. Welcome to the show, Ashley. Hello. Hi. <laughs> how are you? <laughs> um.
1: Yeah, I'm good. It's uh, so strange working from home. You know, it's it's been... Gosh, I've been working from home since March now, so it's, it's coming up to what, six months, it's been a long time.
0: Oh, gosh, yeah.
1: Not being in the opera house, um, you know, just missing the dancers and the company and all the, the office staff and, you know, everything that goes with being in the opera house. It's just very, it's very different.
0: Mm. Yeah. yeah. So I wanted to start by just thanking you for coming on Move Beyond Words um, and also to just take us back to when we first met, which was back in 2015 now uh, at the Royal Ballet. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And thinking about today and thinking about the first moment that I remember at the Opera House, which was my first day and we had a radio interview with Wayne, which you kindly organised. And it was focusing on the inaugural Young Choreographer position or program. And I was so incredibly nervous for this interview. I don't know if you remember.
1: I do remember, Charlie, actually. <laughs> and why do you so? it was your first moment, really, talking to the media? Yeah. And, you know, it's a scary thing to do for the first time, for sure. So, you know. Mm.
0: I definitely felt my dyslexia creeping up on me in that moment. And, I didn't think anyone in the room had an idea of the internal frustration that was going on. Little did I know that you might have some idea or understanding of that feeling.
1: I remember you, um, and it's such a shame that we couldn't have been so honest about this, you know, then, because it would have made things so much clearer. But I remember you really um, overthinking everything and (gasps) overthinking what you were going to say. Do you remember? And then you would kind of trip yourself up on what you wanted to say and you didn't feel that you were articulating yourself in the way that you wanted to to express yourself. Um, And that was something you just kept over-processing it and thinking about. I remember the the conversation we had after the interview and you were just kind of really, especially slightly frustrated with the way that you'd come across because you didn't feel that you'd express yourself as you wanted to. But for me in that room, you were brilliantly articulate and you know, so clear, but I know that it was obvious that you were really disappointed with the way you'd come across, I think.
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's so interesting to hear you speak about it from your point of view, actually, and how it's been, you know, so long since that. But I think then finding out about your dyslexia later down the line you know, was amazing and now now we're here and now we can talk about this. I think also as a choreographer and as artists, Elizabeth and I are really inspired by how you've been bridging the gap between fashion and dance, both in print and digital platforms and helping promote dance to wider audiences by advocating dance artists and fusing the arts, using various mediums and Mm -hmm. highlighting role models within the dance industry but we're so inspired by your work and very much look forward to learning how you went all about this so to start off with as head of press at the Royal Ballet can you let us know how this came to be?
1: It's a long it's a long journey actually you know Listening to the other podcasts, it's what is really lovely to celebrate is that people with dyslexia, it takes a long time to get where you want to be. And, you know, <laughs> yes. it took me a while to get to this point where I had this career. You know, I didn't really start, especially getting paid until I was like 29, 30. I've done a lot of volunteer work and internships and just having doors shut in my face a lot of the time, but I knew I couldn't do anything else but really work in the arts I'd always loved theatre and drama and history and art. And that was kind of what I was wanted to do. But uh, no one in my family worked in those arenas at all. So none of my family knew where to, how to help me or to support me in that journey, really. And it, it took a long time to, to finally for it all to align. But when it did, it came very quickly. But I think that what I've always had is tenacity and I've just never given up. I did a degree in history and drama. Those were the things I really wanted to do, but I couldn't get into the sector paid work. I did a lot of free work. And then I got very frustrated and then I did a master's degree in computing, which was like so off the wall and such a curve. I was so frustrated at not being able to get into the industry because I just couldn't break through. So I I did what I thought was a very sensible thing, a very sensible qualification that I could just get a job and earn a, a living. And, um i qualified in computing god knows how i mean it was bloody hard because i had to learn how to computer program and you know i don't work in maths or figures or patterns or repetition and um it was the hardest thing and i kept failing and failing that module it was just endlessly exhausting but somehow again it's nasty that i passed i've got a masters in computing that i've never used it's hilarious because i'm if anyone in the office asked about IT, I just completely haven't. <laughs> and I was offered a job teaching IT in Birmingham on the back of getting this qualification. And I thought, I'm just going to turn this down and give it another six months and see what comes up. And in that interim period, at this point, I was working for the Royal Shakespeare Company in the box office. I've been there in Stratford and Avon for a while, actually. Oh. But I couldn't break through into internally at the Royal Shakespeare Theatre to work in the, 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 the marketing or the press team or I couldn't get through, I couldn't get out of the box office. And I went to see the head of marketing and I said, you know, what can I do? And she said, sometimes it's best if you just step away from the organisation you're in and go and work for a smaller organisation. And that's what I did. I saw a job in Canterbury at the Marlowe Theatre, a receiving theatre. So uh, at the age of 29, I, I, I took a massive pay cut and I did a very, very junior entry-level role, actually. It was just a marketing assistant job. Um, But I knew that if I had a year on my CV, that I could then take that and get another job and move forward. And it was the best thing I ever did. And I was at the Marlow for just over a year, working on panto and musicals. And um, primarily what I did at the Marlow was I got my first taste of working for dance. The way I came to the Royal Ballet was um, another interesting story and something that I'm, whenever I think about it, I do get slightly cringe because um, <laughs> I went out for for dinner with a friend. We just, you know, we were just catching up and I was really happy at the Design Museum. So, you know, they they were relocating new premises, new vision, bigger building, everything was going really well. And uh, my friend said, oh, you know, that he was looking at this job he'd seen advertised um, at the Royal Ballet and he was really keen to apply for it. And I was like, this sounds really interesting. And before then, I hadn't really ever engaged with the Royal Ballet. I'd been to see with my friends just as like a kind of rite of passage living in London. I lived in Covent Garden. Uh, We went to see Chazelle with um, uh, Sergei Polunin and um, Tamara Rocha. And at that point, I had no nice. idea who they were, you know. Yeah. Obviously now, that's like a golden ticket. You know what I mean? Right.
2: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so,
1: I remember we, we got our tickets in the Amphi and we all dressed up and we went and sat. We watched, we watched Giselle and I was like, oh, okay, yeah. And little <laughs> did I know that, you know, that was going to have such an impact on my life. Going back to this, uh, you know, I'm having dinner with my friend. He's telling me about this, this job he'd seen But the more he spoke about it, the more I thought, this sounds really interesting. So I went home and then I Googled this job and I found it online. And I I went through all the, you know, the job spec and the personal requirements. I was like, this is my job. (laughs) It was like, it was like a bolt of lightning that just said, this is your job. And I was like, oh God, I don't know what to do. Because the the deadline was like the next day or or the day after. It was really soon. And I went to work the following day and I spoke to a dear friend of mine and I said, I don't know what to do because I love it here at the museum, but I've seen this job and I just, I'm just really compelled to apply. And he said, well, just apply. You might not get it, but if you get it, worry about it then. Yeah. And so I, I, I submitted what was a very kind of quick application because I didn't have time to really go into detail. You know, I just said, this is what I can do. This is who I am. This is my experience. And and then I got a call for an interview and um you know it's like okay I'll go in for an interview so I went in and (laughs) um had an interview which went very well you know but I had nothing to lose because I was very happy
0: yeah
1: and then they called me back for a second interview a bigger meeting about what I could do and what my vision was and I was, I was very clear to them at that point. I said, Look, I'm not going to sit here and lie and say I know a great deal about the, the Royal Ballet because I didn't. I didn't know a great deal about its dances or its history, you know. But I said, This is what I can do, and this is what I believe will be exciting for the Royal Ballet. And, and what was really exciting was that they were prepared to take a risk on me. In a sense, it was a, it was a buffer because it was only for nine months. So if it all went wrong you know we could all walk, walk right. away and be like oh that was a disaster wasn't it but um, <laughs> that wasn't the case for yeah. me. it
0: wasn't yeah
1: no it was uh, it was the beginning of a really really special time and when i joined that was in, in 2012 um it was in april and uh, that was when kevin was appointed director so in a sense we both started oh, yes. at a similar time so my job was you know about launching Kevin and his, you know, vision for the Royal Ballet. So I was only there for nine months, but it was a a very busy nine months. The Design Museum were amazing. They left my job open. They said this was like a career progression that I could go to the Royal Ballet, get a new string to my bow, understand a different element of PR, come back to the museum, (laughs) um, which is what I did. And I was there for a year and did an amazing exhibition on Paul Smith. And then, you know, was really pushing forward with the relocation of the museum. And then the job came up again, but it was a permanent contract. And so here oh, we are, six years Wow. Out. Yeah.
2: And I imagine with all the changes that are going on right now due to COVID-19 and lockdown, you know, it's been a real shift in, in the content that you're creating and having to really think from a really different perspective, how to reach those audiences and engage them in the work the really important work that you guys do. So I'm wondering how you and the Royal Opera House are managing those and what what the future really looks like.
1: I mean, yeah, what the future looks like, well we we really don't know, you know, it's 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 difficult, you know, to create dance to 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 dance to partner to touch at this time with the restrictions that we have to adhere to and the guidelines that we have to adhere to. Um so that's a challenge for us. It's it's not impossible, you know. There are people that live together that can dance together, and um, but yeah, we we are kind of still working on with the government as to what we can really do. What's been really lovely is you know all these amazing dancers, you know, and choreographers out there are creating amazing films. Charlie is one of them, and you guys have made a really lovely film, uh, which we shared on our platform called. Uh, 10 million tons, you know, focusing on the the amount of plastic in the ocean. Um, but it's really been amazing and inspiring to see the dancers just create, and they they have that need to to share their, you know, their, their way of expressing through movement. And there's been some amazing dance films created. Um, but the Royal Opera House have done a number of other things as well. We've done a number of free uh, relays and uh, broadcasts of some of our amazing uh, content and. Um, cinema recordings that we've been offering for free over the spring and summer um and they've had in excess of like nine million views which is amazing you know that people can just tune in on facebook and through our website to watch opera and ballet for free um and so you know there's a massive appetite out there and it's how we kind of really now make sure that we take people that have maybe engage for the first time with us, you know, and hopefully we can encourage them to come and actually see an actual real performance whenever that can happen. Um, But uh, it's been a really difficult time for sure.
2: I do find that people with dyslexia are wonderful problem solvers. And so I have noticed that a lot of people I know um, who are dyslexic and creative have actually been thriving during this time because they're used to having to fix things, often on a day-to-day basis, problem solving. It's been really interesting to see how different people with different mindsets have made lockdown either a great experience or a really challenging experience. But I've really noticed that those with dyslexia ha- have, have thrived. A lot have thrived. And as this podcast is all about dyslexia, I'd love to learn more about your relationship with dyslexia.
1: Um- so you know like most of us it kind of really came it it became obvious in like primary school that i was struggling you know so i was at school in the in the 80s in the early 80s at, at, at which point you know i don't really think that the school was very much geared up to supporting children with dyslexia and so i was i was just classed as someone that was slow you know that term oh he's slow w- which is not very helpful is it really um and no, and i no. When you when you invited me to take part in this podcast, I, I had a long chat with my mom about, you, you know, how it came about that it was obvious that I wasn't really picking things up. And she said, you know, the teacher said you were slow and that you were in your own little world. You know, you're in your own in your own head, really. And that was because, you know, I just wasn't keeping up. And so the way that I maybe dealt with that was just to kind of shut down because I couldn't engage with the rest of the class because I wasn't really understanding what was going on. I think it's supposed to say it took quite a while for the school to really kind of respond. Um, and um, my mom did request that, you know, that I get, I got some help. And so the school arranged me to have a test, which I've completely forgotten about. I didn't realise I I I'd, I'd had a test. Um, so I grew up in the Midlands um, in a new town called Redditch, And the test that I had to go to was in Birmingham at, uni- at the Birmingham University, which is a bit of a schlep, you know, it was quite a... A journey, yeah. Um, and I, I and I went and I, I did the tests and uh, I I came away and I there were so many different levels of dyslexia and I, I I guess I'm on the I I don't know how to class it but it's you know my 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 challenge isn't isn't that isn't that deep that makes sense you know I struggle with certain things but I can function you know I can it just takes me a long time to kind of to get to grips with things if that makes sense. Yeah. So once I'd been diagnosed, um, the school really weren't keen to do much about it. So my mum, bless her, arranged me to have extra tuition. And so I would go for extra tuition three times a week after school, um, which, which, which really, really killed me as a kid. Because, you know, I'd had to have a full day at school, then I'd have to be picked up by my mum and then have another hour session. So it was a long day, you know, and I really... Yeah hated it. But it 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 did work, you know, the it, it did really start to to have an a, an effect. But I used to really kick back about having to do this. Um and I remember, you know the way I got a, well, the way my mom got around it was that she'd take me to the sweet shop afterwards and buy me a bag of sweets. You know, that was the treat. You know? <laughs> oh, oh the that that nice. so... exactly. You know, oh. <laughs> but I, I I can still remember going to this. It was a bungalow where this uh, this tutor lived. I'd go and sit at her dining room table and then be forced to read. You know, it was excruciating. It was really hard. Um, but you know, uh, I really struggled with like telling the time. You know, on on a watch with the big hand and the mm. small hand. And I didn't know my alphabet, and like, like my friends knew it, or like even my younger friends knew it. So I felt like I just felt a little bit. It's funny because I never felt. Um, I don't want to say I did. I never felt embarrassed, but I was just aware that I wasn't keeping up, you know. Um, hmm. And I struggled with yeah. my left and right, you know. And even now, if someone says turn left, i will be like, oh, you know, I have to think. <laughs> I have to think. So yeah, it was in primary school that it was really picked up, and then when I moved to middle school, uh, I was then segregated into, and I think, it, and then I I got really self conscious because it was called remedial reading, and so I was kind of labelled as some kind of you know a remedial, which was I was so like offended by that, you know, um, and that I was other in a sense, and I remember I had to we my year class you know we everyone had like a a a book they were reading collectively in the in their English class you know the, the year group were reading this 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 one book whatever it was but I wasn't at that level to read that book so I would physically have to leave the classroom to go to these special learning classes with the other children and I just used to feel quite humiliated by that and uh again it caused a lot of problems for me and my mom was very good at, you know, at asking the school whether there's another way that they could manage that, and that I didn't feel so that I had to physically be removed, or that I didn't feel that I had to walk away. Does that make sense? What I'm trying to say? I just felt. Oh you
2: know. yeah, absolutely. I'm yeah. not in like viciously. <laughs> um,
1: I was just so upset, and why? I was very blessed at school that I was never bullied, and I was never picked on, and I, you know, I loved school, even though I was really. Struggling with it, but there were some things that I really excelled at. Um, but yeah, the reading was very difficult for me. But it, it took a while to get to get to a point where I didn't have to do that. But I think, um, uh, yeah, I, 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 I did have a, I did really struggle with that. And then when I went to high school, at that point, I, um, my first year of high school, year nine, I was in bottom set for everything. You know, I think they kind of just given up on me, really. Um, Yeah, you know, boss said everything, (laughs) and then you know, I um, when you picked your GCSEs there were a few of those GCSE classes that were mixed ability, which was great because there was a mixed an array of children, you know, and uh, of all abilities. And I think that for me, that really worked. I could see people that were really excelling, and that kind of gave me something to head Mm. to. That kind of tenacity again kicked in. I thought, I want to be there. Whereas there were some GCSEs where I was just pushed in bottom class, like in maths. I was just like given to the, you know, he isn't going to achieve anything. So just put him in bottom class. And so that class was basically a riot. And so no one achieved anything because we were just, they just gave up on yeah. us. And I remember in my French GCSE class, I really love languages, but they'd put me in a, in a French class that I could only attain a, an E grade at GCSE. A pass. And I knew that I could do better. And I lobbied my yearhead yeah. to say, can I do the, the mock exam just to see how I get on? And they were like, oh, okay. And I said, no, I think I can do this. So I, they put me in for the mock and I got a C. And I was like, look at this, I've got a C. And they were like, yeah, well, that might be a bit of a fluke. But, you know, if you were to sit the actual exam, you could still pass. we think especially if you just stick at your level and you're guaranteed an e-grade pass. you know which is what i did i kind of just sucked it up and i thought oh, well they know best but you know it's even when i proved i could do it this the support wasn't there to be like come on you can do it you know
2: mm. yeah I remember I got an A-star actually in media studies. And um, when I got my A-star GCSE back, it was a mixed class, as you said. So there was the opportunity to get that grade, but I no way would have got that grade had I have been split up because I know my teacher would have put me in a lower set. And she actually said when I got my GCSE result back, she said, is this your paper? Uh-huh. And, and she said, did you actually get this grade? Oh, and that no. and you know, and I'd been working, I used to work at the school until it closed and then I'd go home and have a nap and I'd continue working on my GCSEs till 10 at night. And it's so, you know, if if there isn't that support there, you're always your own cheerleader, aren't you? And it's, it's draining, you know, you do need those people to take a risk. Like they took a risk on you, you know, when you, You Mm -hmm. said about your work, um, you know, and people in your earlier career just took a risk on you and said, let's give you a go and let's give you a shot. Do you see dyslexia being portrayed within dance and the arts and represented?
1: Gosh, that's an interesting question. I know that a number of choreographers have explored themes of this. Charlie has done so, as has um, Akash, Akash Adedra. Yeah.
0: Oh, Akash Dedra! Akash Dedra, he did a piece for
1: us um, that was inspired by dyslexia um, a number of years ago in the Limbury Theatre. Yeah, so um, so it does come through in his art. I mean, to be honest, it's not a conversation that I really have with many people, and it's the first time I've really spoken openly about this. Oh wow! It was really interesting when when I was going back over my experience. It was I got really upset about it and i thought oh my god i'm gonna get really upset oh, talking about yeah. this now and i but i i i'm glad i haven't because i've i've been able to process it but it, it got i did get really upset about it um because you kind of bottle it up and you just you know i think we're always moving forward to the next to the next because we're being so tenacious and just pushing through and getting to where we want to get that you don't look back maybe think how hurt you've been or how mm. embarrassed you were or yeah. how ashamed you were. And um,
2: mm.
1: yeah, there was a, there was there was a, a huge amount of sadness that when I look back, I, I got very upset about it and I was like, wow, I didn't expect that at all to be a thing. So it's quite empowering to do this. So yeah. So, so yeah. Um, I don't know if a lot of people really talk about it. So I don't know in the company of the dancers, how many, the ratio of dancers that have dyslexia, what that is. I mean, Charlie, you might know of going to the Royal Ballet School and, and that, you know.
0: I only had, there was one other guy in my year who was in like the dyslexia classes with me um, at White Lodge. But other than that, I, there weren't many. And and I don't know if that there were some students that weren't diagnosed um, or there are some dancers. I think um, Eric, when I down? worked with Eric Underwood, we had a chat about that. And, um, you know, it was, it was quite a, an amazing moment when he turned around and said, oh, I might be dyslexic. Sorry, can you just give yeah. me a minute? And I was like, Oh my gosh, don't worry. That's absolutely <laughs> fine. <laughs> in, you know, absolutely like half starstruck, like, <laughs> like, um, and in, you know, just, just loving his honesty, um, especially as a fellow dyslexic, but, um, no, I'm hoping that through these conversations, you know we're going to find more dancers and, and more artists who are dyslexic because we know that um, one of the traits of dyslexia is creativity, and that many people with dyslexia cra- yeah. gravitate towards the arts. So, I don't, I don't know yet within the company, mm-hmm. and I'm hoping to find a few more. Looking back at your journey and. And and speaking about your dyslexia with your mum, dyslexia yeah. can be inherited. Um, were there any members of your family that you feel yeah, my dad definitely has
1: dyslexia for sure. He's he's a terrible speller. Um, I mean, my dad's a builder, so he's a craftsman. You know, he uses his hands, and so he didn't ever, you oh, know, he left yeah. school when he would have been I don't know fifteen sixteen, and he didn't ever need. To pursue a formal, you know, education, you know, um, so so he uses his hands, and you know, he he's very good at reading a plan or an architect's plan, but yeah, his spelling isn't great, and he's not the best writer, to be honest with with you. But um, you know, so yeah, it it is within the family for sure. Um, so yeah, I do think there is an element of it of it being inherited. I think that's that's the case. Um, my brother doesn't have problem at all you know he was always much brighter than me and you know um sailing through school uh, it's just funny isn't it how, it how annoying, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I <know> how
2: annoying <laughs> So within the show, Ashley, we do a segment where it's show and tell, yeah. and um, we ask our guests to bring on an item that represents AIDS or embraces their dyslexia. And I wondered if there was an item that you could share with us that you believe helps or represents dyslexia within your life. And I think I know what this might be. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All through my life, I've I've kept scrapbooks. I've always had a very visual eye. And even as a kid, you know, I would keep, a I still got my scrapbooks from a kid that would be like cutouts of Christmas cards or bus tickets or a pressed flower or like a really eclectic, almost like a kind of mind mood board of my life, you know, a a, a photograph of my rabbits and their hutches or, you know what I mean, a a drawing of, uh, I don't know, an an owl (laughs) or something. It's like a kind of a visual aid to me. And I've always worked that way. Um, And if you work in in press like I do, it's about who your contacts are. you know, I remember everyone saying, you know, you need a contacts book, you know what's who's in your book? who do you know, right? And so um, for me, that was a, a physical book that I had to have, and I could write down who my contacts were. It's funny now when i when I you know work with uh, younger people from a different generation that they have their contacts listed on spreadsheets, you know. That doesn't work for me. I don't need to look at a spreadsheet. I need to physically have a book, and so I've got my contacts book. But they are my book of contacts, but they're also a scrapbook, and so they're like a a diary as well. Because okay, so this is I've got two. I'm going to show you this book, which is like it's like an old friend, and I'm gonna. Can you see this? Okay. (gasps) Oh my gosh. Wow! <laughs> so this is this book. Wow! I began this book in two thousand five when I went to the Marlowe Theatre, right? And so, and I've had it ever since. And so, oh!
0: Wow. I
1: mean, it's just you know, it's got so much in it that it's it, the back oh. is broken, and you know, it doesn't make this book makes no sense to anyone but me. And so, I know exactly in this <laughs> book where my uh, fashion contacts are, where my architecture contacts are, where my uh, news desks are, where my TV production companies are, just by the the, the way that the the pictures that I've stuck within it, that's yeah. kind of like my index or my reference points. So i will be like, oh, so if I'm going to look for fashion, I'm going to look for, you know, this amazing invitation that I've had from the queen. And so then I go <gasps> to that or Ooh. if I go to, I don't know, you know <laughs> what I mean? I said that the pictures reference the, the, the book for me um and so whenever I get this book out everyone's like what the hell is that? <laughs> I'm Like, well, this is my contact book um, and everyone else it's just it, it's just like a load of um well,
2: for listeners Ashley because this is just so beautiful I'd love to for you to try to describe in as much detail one of the pages <laughs> if you can <laughs>
1: So I'm looking at, this is, okay, this is the, the page of the Royal Opera House for the internal department. So the Opera House is so big that we live on phones. So there's a phone number for, like, this is for hats and jewellery, for hair and wigs, um, for the armory, for the props department. And so these are the, the the direct line numbers that I can just phone as opposed to me having to physically go to these apartments because it's such a big building, yeah. you know. Um, and on that page is a picture of a lovely pride of lions.
0: Um, oh.
1: <laughs> that I cut out from a newspaper, as well as a stamp from the Olympics from 2012.
0: Amazing.
1: And, and then, a, do you know what? A really lovely artist called Angela Racour. And when I finished my time in uh. Bali, my nine months, I wanted to give myself a gift, so I bought myself a piece of artwork. Oh wow! Uh, and it was a piece of artwork by this artist, and it's a huge pastel uh, drawing that I love, and it's um. I think, you know, sometimes you have to really celebrate, you know, when you've done something and you're really proud of your achievements. Absolutely. And so I, I invested in a piece of art that I'll have for the rest of my life. And so Aww. There's a picture from Andrew in that book, but every page is different. But yeah, so my book and my show and tell, and I, I really do love them and I use them every day. I do use them every day. I update them as well. You know, journalists come and go new people come into your life and they have to be added into the book. Um, and uh, it, it it's it, it it's unique. I've not met any other other PR that has this, but um, I wouldn't, I couldn't do it any other way.
0: I love how random these are as well, yeah. and also the fact that they're just like visual references that spark like something in your mind, like a contact in your mind. But there's no there's no connection that's exactly kind of this non-linear way of thinking that our minds are like, oh my God, I want to, s- I really am so jealous. I wish
2: I was there with you trying to look through I think through we're going to, we're going to have to get some pictures from you, actually, yeah. but yes. blocking out the names, obviously.
0: <laughs> it's great finding these strategies and things that we need to put in place to help us. And by doing all of this, do you feel like you have a better understanding of your dyslexia?
1: Yeah, of course I do, I do. And it goes back to, you know, what was what I said earlier about reading aloud, you know, I understand that that's gonna be a challenge for me. Um, you know, I, what's ironic, guys, is that I work with writing and with copy and every yeah. day I write, oh, you God, know. Yeah. And let's if you if I went back, you know, to school and someone was to say, This is what you'll be doing, I'd be like, Are you joking? You know what I mean? The <laughs> thought that I spend my life with words and you know, bringing copies together for sound bites and just for really kind of engaging um, pieces of writing that will hopefully connect with people uh, is so far removed from what I, w- I thought I would be doing. But
2: mm.
1: what I love about that is that I really love words. And I've always, even when I was having struggle reading, I really went out of my way to read more so that I could be catching up with what my friends were reading. Even though when I was in my reading classes and I was reading you know maybe two or three years younger than where I should be at at the weekends I was reading to try and keep up with what my friends were reading so I didn't want to feel that I was missing out that I was different and since then I've always read I read now I've always had a book on the go and I think that has been a, a huge shift you know in my learning and just the way that I see words and the joy that I get from from you know reading a beautiful sentence or just the power of of language really um and so i really i do enjoy writing and i enjoy the the challenge of writing a really great press release and making it really engaging and having all the the bits of information i need to put in there but that's not to say that you know i don't i have endless typos you know i have endless spelling mistakes but i'm not ashamed of that because i know that the obviously the you know we have computers that help with that and I you know I have people in my team everyone needs to have their copy read two or three times that's how it is and you know to have a second glance but the bare bones of what I've written is really strong you know and I can stand by that and I know that I I may have missed off a full stop but there's other people in the team that can catch that for me you know so coming back to the question i i know my dyslexia i know that if i'm going to have to read aloud that's going to be a problem i have to really think about that i know that if i'm writing copy if i if i share it with the wider team for them to, to have a second look at it they're going to come back with a few you know typos or things that need correcting i try not to beat myself up about that i do sometimes you know and i i know that if I'm gonna send an email, I really need to compose it and then I need—I should really sit on it rather than send it immediately because if I do so, I can't see the errors in it. So I need to write it and then maybe just go away from the screen and then come back and then I can really see where the errors are because if I write something and then I glance over it quickly, I'm not gonna see that I've spelled they're wrong or you're wrong. Do you know what I mean, what it is, you know?
0: Or doze, I would say doze
1: rather than does. Exactly, (laughs) or you know...
0: Does doze work for you?
1: (laughs) (laughs) What's so funny is that my bloody um, computer is so used to my typing errors that I think it's accepted them as a way of spelling. (laughs) Same. (laughs) So if if I put in (sighs) the and I spell it H-T-E, I think my computer thinks that that, that's that's a word. (laughs) And it's like... (laughs) Like in pieces, like, right? you know, just as
2: confused as I am sometimes. And I mean, working in a, a big organisation, I really wonder, one, if you feel there's support there for you and and talking about your dyslexia and also whether you feel that there's enough being done for people with dyslexia within the arts.
1: You know, for a long time, I would never have acknowledged or volunteered that I had dyslexia because it's such a... That's that element of like of, of shame and that you know how are you even doing what you're doing you know how is this how can this be you know yeah for a long time I would never have dared to have been so open about this and you know I, I, it's it's something that I just deal with on a daily basis um I, I don't know if my immediate team know about my dyslexia so I've, I've told a number of them and you know I. And that's why I you know we i i get them to read my copy to make sure it's it's fine um this is
2: such a huge step for you ashley i'm i'm feel really honored that you've trusted us to you know facilitate this conversation and and also just you know for your honesty, I think having people within organizations who step forward and say you know here's and and are vulnerable um God, it just opens so many doors for other people to come forward and for us to work out how we move forward with the positive skill sets with dyslexia and really embracing them for others to see and supporting each other's way of working. I think I'm just, I'm really, really honored that, that you're kind of here and, and talking to us, but we're not finished yet. <laughs> it sounds like I'm closing up, but um, I just had to jump in there and just thank you for, for that.
1: No, it's, um, yeah, it's been great sharing this with you.
2: Do you feel that, I guess it's about judging a situation and assessing if the situation is right to bring it up? Um, or is it just like you said, like that transparency for us all to be able to understand each other a little better? Do you think that's probably the best way?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't it be interesting if, you know, if when you applied for a job, there was an option, I don't know, would you be stigmatized, you know, if it, if it asked you, do you have dyslexia, do you know, and you would just be mm. front and center with it. I don't, you know what I mean? I don't know. Um, yeah. You know, you just, you just don't want it to be something that's going to be held against you too. That, that's, that's because, you know, we've all come through school and we're bruised from that, you know, where it's like a label that's like, yeah. oh, Ashley now has to do his special reading. So he's going to have to leave the class, you know, it's, that still scars, doesn't it? You know? Yeah,
2: definitely. Definitely. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why I never went to an organization for support with my work for a really long time, because you're so worried about, that not, Mm -hmm. not being good enough, you know, that's kind of what it does come down to, or knowing that you work in a different way and that organization might not support that different way of you working. And so I think what I've learned on this journey so far is that transparency is really powerful and owning up to who you are and what you can and what you can't do is more reflective on the organization if they don't want to support you than who you are because you have something to offer. And if people can't see that, then they're lost, you know, and you've got to have that self-confidence, but I'm still, I, I really wanted to hear you answer that because I think I'm still working out when is and when isn't the right situation i mean i've set up a business about (laughs) dyslexia so i don't think there's much hiding now (laughs) yeah
0: and ashley what advice would you give to your younger self
1: i i would never ever have believed that i would be where i am right now and you know that's yeah that's just I'm so speechless that I I, I, I do what I do and um, I'm completely blessed that I I do this so I mean it's like I'm living a dream it's like I live a dream my dream that you know I get to work with all of these amazing publications and networks that I only dreamed of doing you know it's um it's it, it's it's beyond brilliant so gosh what would I say to my younger self you know <laughs> Dreams come true, you know, oh, it's, um, it's... That's lovely. Just don't give up. There's, there's no way that at the age of even 27, I thought that I would be where I'm at, you know, because it just wasn't coming together at all. Um, but when it did, I knew it would come very quickly. Dream big yeah dream big exactly just do
0: it oh thank you so much for coming on the podcast it's been so amazing to hear your journey and I feel very inspired I feel it's amazing to see where you've gone and 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 what you've brought and and how inspired you are as well with the arts and, and creativity and that's definitely fueling me with A lot of, a lot of smiles and a lot of, it sounds so cheesy, but I really, (laughs) sorry, Ashley, this is such a cheese ball.
1: um, Wonderful. Thank you. It's been really lovely to share this, these thoughts and just these, these reflections really with you. And um, thank you for having me on.
2: Thanks, Ashley. (laughs) It
0: was quite emotional And an absolute privilege to hear Ashley speak about his experience with dyslexia. Having known him and worked with him in the same organisation, I had no idea that we both had dyslexia. So what's really wonderful is that going forward, we can speak openly about our dyslexia and share our experiences and hopefully encourage people within other organisations and our collaborators and colleagues that we work with to just speak openly and and honestly about something that they might be battling with
2: yeah I I agree completely he's just so incredibly brave and you can see that he's someone who has had so much determination and he didn't stop even though he was faced with so many hurdles he just kept overcoming them and persevering and I just I'm so inspired by that and how he did reach his dreams and I, i'm i'm so grateful that he came on and 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 shared his story with us i'm so grateful and i hope that people are really touched by what he shared and and how he shared it This podcast is made with the wider Move Beyond Words team. Podcast production is by Niall Kalini Taylor. Move Beyond Words project manager is Hannah Granger Gibbs. Art and design is from Alex Colhern. PR and social media
0: manager, Sean Gilling. And original music by Tom Parker. This series is funded by Arts Council England.